The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. It's a thrill and a joy to worship together and especially to encounter God's Word. So let's pray as we do that, ask Him for His help. Father, we just take a deep breath now to listen to your word. Uh, You alone know where each one of us is coming from as we approach this passage. Some things are hard to understand, um, but we want to see what you're saying to us today. We believe and know that you are speaking to us even today as we sit here together looking at your word. And so I ask you for help. Lord, please help me to teach this faithfully, clearly, and uh, And then we ask together, Lord, you do your work in each one of us, myself included, as we encounter what you've said. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever run from God? Have you ever run from God? Maybe maybe you knew him, you followed him, something happened. Maybe, Maybe God said no to you, something you wanted very badly, he said no. Or, or maybe he asked you for something you did not want to give. Or, or maybe it was his church, maybe his people disappointed you. Or finally, maybe he just didn't seem desirable to you anymore in comparison with other things, and so you ran. Have you ever run from God? I have. I have. So just to let you know, in a couple of weeks, we're going to work through the gospel of Mark. We're going to take in the life of Jesus together. I'm really excited about that. I want you to come, bring all your friends. Before we get there, I want us to learn together as a church a little bit from the book of Jonah. And we're going to see some, some things in this book that are very surprising. Uh, to start in our chapter today, we're going to see a prophet of God run from God. What is going on? Why does he do this? What happens next? We want to look at that. So here's what we're going to do this morning. First, I got to give you just a little bit of a background of the book. We're going to study this book. We got to take some things into context, understand them. Uh, then we're going to take this chapter in four scenes. So if you want to think of Jonah like a, a mini series you're watching on TV or something, uh, this is episode one. There's going to be four scenes, all right? And then we're going to think about okay, how do we take what we've seen in Jonah and ingest it? How, how do we live this out? What does it mean for us? So, that's six scenes. And as I usually say, you know, you're used to pastors that give you three points, right? And, and I, I just think you're all-stars. That's why I'm doing six points, okay? Background, four scenes, application, six. First of all, background. All right, let's be honest. If you went to Sunday school or you've heard the story, Jonah, what do you think of? That's fishy, right? You think, this is terrible, wasn't it? Can I get a groan? I, I've been waiting all month to use that one. Um, really, you're, you, you want me to believe that someone was somehow swallowed by a creature of the deep, and not only he survived, but he like, it was a bus to take him where he needs to go. You want me to believe that? I hear you. That's, that's quite the, that's a challenge, right? That feels like a fairy tale. That feels like, it seems ridiculous. But, but let's, try to think, let's try to think carefully, just, just briefly. If you have more questions about this, I'd love to talk to you. 
First of all, let's ask this. How does the, how does the author intend, it, intend for us to take this book? There, there are such a thing as parables in the Bible, right? Or, or a story that teaches you a moral. That, that, that's in the Bible. Is, is that what Jonah is? Is that what this is? Is it, is it just a story uh, with a moral lesson? Well, if you take Jonah into account, I think seriously, you take the rest of the Bible into account, I'm pretty sure the book itself and the Bible expects you to take this book as legitimate historical testimony. I'll give you uh, one major reason. Jonah's a real person. Did you see that uh, as, the, as the chapter began, it said, Jonah, the son of Amittai. Okay? That means um, we know his genealogy. He's a legitimate person. It also reminds you of another place in Scripture. And I want to I bring that up to you in a mo- here just so you can see it, so you know the context of what's going on here. Look at 2 Kings 14.23. Kings is the historical narrative of what happens to the people of Israel, right? 2 Kings 14.23. In the 50th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. He reigned 41 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So just before we move on, just notice a few things. These are... Uh, the, the people of God are split into two. You got the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah. And he's giving you the dates on what king is reigning when. And it's historical narrative. It's, tell, it's telling you historical fact. Another thing you see, verse 24, how is this king? Verse 24, he's evil, okay? And that tells you, that tells you the, the trajectory of what's happening with God's people. They become more and more corrupt, right? They were intended to be a light to the other nations as God showed them his grace. They were supposed to be different and stand out so that everybody could see, oh, look how good God is as they saw Israel. But instead, instead of being a light to the nations, they're becoming more and more like the nations, sometimes worse than the nations. Okay, now we'll keep going. 2 Kings 14, now look at verse 25. Even though this king's evil, look what he's able to do. He restored the border of Israel. And you get Cities from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke, and here's the part that's curious for us, by who? His servant, who? Jonah of Amittai, the what? The prophet. He's from Gath Hefer, okay? It's a city. But you see, this is a, this is a real person who is actually quite notable in the history of Israel. We know his dad. We know where he's from. Not only that, he's a prophet. God speaks to the people through him. And look at verse 26. It's so important. Even though the nation's becoming more and more evil, for the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, and there was none left, bond or free. There was none to help Israel. You see, so you've seen the heart of God already. Does Israel at this point deserve God's help and his blessing? Explicitly, no. And yet, how does God still feel about his people? He's concerned, right? And he's concerned enough, even in their rebellion, sends a prophet, the prophet speaks God's word, and militarily, politically, they're able to reclaim some things that were lost in battle to other nations. And it's all because God was kind. So, so what do you think? Does the Bible intend for you to take Jonah as a cute story that didn't really happen, but get some morals out of it? Or is this, are you supposed to take this as legitimate historical testimony? 
We're supposed to take it like historical testimony. So then we'll go back to our big question. You want me to believe a whale swallowed this dude and carried him where he's supposed to go? Let's just check our assumptions when it comes to the possibility of miracles. It's all about your assumptions, isn't it? Please don't think I'm, I'm asking you to believe that every story you ever hear is true or that um, every time someone says, God says to me, you're supposed to be like, oh, I believe you. I'm so skeptical about most of these things. But the Bible has won my trust, okay? But, but just ask this question. Do you believe that there's a God who created everything by the power of his speaking? Okay, that's, that's your first one. Do you believe there's a God who made everything? If you do, come on, doesn't that open the possibility of miracles? I mean, what's harder, creating the universe or getting a, a crazy fish story for three days? You know what I mean? It's, it's, the miracle's not difficult in comparison to creation. And so couldn't God sometimes supersede his normal patterns, his normal laws, in order to make a point? Of course he could. Sometimes he does, right? That's a miracle. And then if you're still really skeptical, I'm so glad you're here. Um, but just to raise one thought with you, say you're, say you're an atheist. I would assert to you, you still have some miracles you believe in. Like there's some pretty amazing things you believe by faith. Life came from nothing without a God. Um, Nearly infinite complexity and organization came accidentally from simplicity. Meaning in life came from randomness. Personhood, justice, and love are somehow realities in a world that's purely material. Do you see how these things have to be taken by faith? And aren't they kind of miraculous? So, if you believe in God and the Bible is one you trust, the best conclusion is the book of Jonah is historical testimony, and we realize that the God of the Bible can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, with his own creation for his purposes, okay? That's where we're coming from here. So the setting then, 8th century BC, if you care about that, this is important. The Assyrian Empire has risen to power, but is kind of in a time of decline. And in that decline, the nation of Israel is enjoying a brief moment of political success, because Assyria is in decline. And, and here's the theological part we need to take in. They're reading that success as God's approval of them and their behavior. We're good and they're bad. That's what Israel is assuming. But what they don't see is it's not God's pleasure in how they're living. It's his mercy in their need. All right, that's the background. Now we're going to get to four scenes. Here's the four scenes if you're taking notes. God speaks, the prophet runs, the prophet is exposed because God is sovereign. God speaks, the prophet runs, the prophet is exposed because God is sovereign. So if you're following on your Bibles, verse 1, God speaks. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Let's just pause there. Massive Massive truth in here. Number one, the Lord. Whenever you see Lord in capital letters in these translations in Hebrew, that's Yahweh. That's God's covenant name with his people. And Yahweh means I am. 
And we just love that about our God. He is, he always is. He's eternal, self-sufficient, faithful. He's the only God, he is. He is good, he is in control. He is just, he is loving, he's worthy of our love, our praise, our obedience. God is, Yahweh is. Not only that, Yahweh speaks. Yahweh speaks. How are you gonna know God if he doesn't talk to you? Wouldn't it just be us making it up? I don't want a God I make up. How are we going to know God if he doesn't talk to us? But he does. Yahweh speaks. He communicates himself to people made in his image so they can know him. And he speaks through his prophets. Why every Sunday are we looking at what the Bible says and not just like, hey, let me tell you my brilliant pondering thoughts of the week. Okay, two reasons. Number one, Matt doesn't have brilliant pondering thoughts of the week. But number two, far more importantly, God has spoken through his prophets and his apostles. And so we want to hear what he says here. That's what we're doing. So just huge truths, right? God is. God speaks. Now let's listen to his message. And man, this would be a shocking message. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. You should know Nineveh was a great city of the Assyrian Empire. Uh, You should know also, you could... You can look at some of this stuff in the British Museum today. The Assyrians were barbaric and wretched. Um, They built their empire on terror and military domination. I'm not even kidding. They had a habit of skinning their victims and putting their captives' heads on stakes around the cities they were going to overcome. And we just don't have words, right? Uh, sometimes you read through history and you read what some nations do to other people, right? We could go on and on and on. The Assyrians were right up there at the top of the list of evil, just evil, horribly evil. And then God says, and I guess we expect this, their evil has come up before me. And that's a way for us to understand the God of the universe sees what's going on in his world. But it also challenges us because he's not just the God of Israel, is he? He's the God of the whole thing. And so amazingly, Nineveh, even though people there don't even believe in the God of Israel, they're still accountable to him. He has a standard and they're accountable to his standard. God sees how they're living. Assyria is responsible to God and guilty before him as is every nation on earth. So God's aware But then this word evil is so interesting. It has some nuance to it. It's not just the sense that God sees Nineveh and he sees how terrible they are. It's also the sense that he sees Nineveh and he sees how miserable they are, how broken they are, how lost they are, how much they need help. So there's, there's justice here, but there's also mercy all in this word we're going to see actually cares about Nineveh. Shocking. Think of the worst people you can think of. God sees. He cares. And they need him to speak to them. It's their only hope. They need to hear him speak. God knows, God cares, God speaks. Amazing, it's shocking. And you can begin to see God's prophet is absolutely appalled by God's word. 
That's a problem. God's prophet is appalled by God's word. He feels like it ruins his existence. He doesn't even want to be around anymore. He's undone. He hates it. So he runs. He runs. God speaks. Here we go. The prophet runs. Verse 3, Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, and so on. Nineveh, you're supposed to go east from where Jonah is. East. I don't, I don't know how that's working between me and you right here. This way, okay? And Jonah, the text is telling you, goes this way. And Tarshish would kind of stand for like the ends of the earth to the known world at the time, as far west as you can go. It just, he's, the, the point of the text is Jonah heard what God told him to do, and Jonah started running the opposite way as hard as he could. He goes down to Joppa. That's a 50-mile walk, everybody. 50-mile walk. Why did he go here? Well, probably that location, there's, there's no Israelites there. He doesn't want to encounter any of God's people anymore. And also, the text seems to possibly infer that as he arrives, you know, hey, where are you guys going? Well, where do you want to go? We're, we're going to Tarshish. I'm in. The text seems to refer, he buys out the whole boat. He buys out the whole boat. It's sailors, Jonah, and cargo. I can't prove that, but it seems to be an, an inference. But you just get the idea of the passion of his running from God. Let's get out of here now at any cost. And it's just a reminder, again, how many of you have run from God, if you remember? When you want to run from God, you find a way, don't you? You find a way. I know that from experience. He's running, and then this ironic phrase, right? He's running from the presence of the Lord. Why is that ironic? Well, we read it in the psalm this morning, didn't we? Where, where is God? Everywhere. He's spirit. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. Like, it's really going to be hard to run from everywhere. Jonah knows this theologically. But you realize he's... He's running from fellowship with God. Do you see the difference? You know, I tell people our church name sometimes, Fountain of Life Fellowship, and they look at me. It's like, I know, we were trying to get the longest name possible. Um, but, you know, fellowship is kind of a churchy word, but when you dig into what it really means, it means like a close sharing. You know, your happiest moments are when you have fellowship. You have a great friend, somebody who knows you, loves you, you know them, you love them. To have fellowship with God, that's the best. To have fellowship with one another here at church with God, sweetest, sweetest thing. Jonah doesn't want fellowship anymore. He's running. He's fleeing God's people. He's fleeing God's word. He's fleeing God's friendship. So I ask again, you ever run like this? If you want to hear my story, I'll tell you. I did it my junior year of college, just like Jonah. It was a little different. I didn't, I didn't do a lot of ocean stuff, but... Just like Jonah. You know, you see a diagnosis of the running heart in Jonah. You did an autopsy spiritually of your heart. Here's what it is. Number one, God confronts or disappoints you. And by the way, if you know this God, I'm, I'm just, I've been a Christian a while, a pastor a while, he will confront or disappoint you. It's not from any lack in him. It's because of brokenness in you. And we expect that he'll be 
what we want him to be in the way that we want him to be. But you realize if that was true, you'd have a fake God. You would just have a projection of your own self on this idea of God. That's not a real God. To meet the real God, I mean, there will be confrontation and disappointment somehow as part of this relationship. That's not all there will be. Oh, no. But it, but it will include this. And so when, when there's confrontation or disappointment, God says no to something you want, or he says yes to something you don't want, that conflict in your heart will bring up, and they may not come out explicitly, but they will come. And the question is this, how good is God? How good is he really? Does he have my best interest in mind? Does he want to thrill me, and will he do it at some point, some way, in the wise way? Can I trust him? right? When you're, when you're hit, when you're confronted, is he good? And the running heart, what does the running heart say to that question? No, he's not good. I used to think he was, but I don't think he's good anymore. It'd be better if I went somewhere else. I'm out. And so I've done it. I've seen it. We leave God's people when we run, don't we? I'm done with this church thing, man. I'm out of here. We, we don't dive into God's word anymore. I'm, I'm running. I'm leaving. But here's the beautiful and shocking thing. You know, I call this series Shocking Grace. There's, there's a play on words happening here. Jonah goes down to Joppa, okay? And you could think, well, he was in the hills, and now he's got to go down to the seashore. He's just going down. Well, he goes down into the boat. You think, well, where do you want him to go? It's raining, right? Um, then he goes down into the fish, And you realize there's a literary play on words here. If God loves you and knows you and you run from him, guess what he will do with you? He will take you down. I'm so thankful God took me down. You know, if you you don't belong to him and you run from him, sometimes in his judgment, he just lets you go, right? Right? He just gives you, you don't want me? Fine, go. That's, that's horrible. It's judgment. But if, his, if his grace is set upon you and you run from him, he'll bring you down because in his love, that's how he's going to bring you back up. Mm. God speaks, the prophet runs. Now we get to the prophet is exposed. And this section is just a lot of fun. Jonah's, I'm running from God. He makes it to Tarshish. He gets the whole boat. Let's go. He's, how's he feeling? I don't know. I did it. I, I got away from God. And then the, the language in the Hebrew here is, and the Lord hurled a great storm. It's like throwing a spear, you know? Oh, Jonah's like, I made it. I, I got away from God. And God's like, boof. Have a storm, Jonah. It's hard to run from a God who's after you. Because he's everywhere, he knows everything, and it's all under his control. Boom. And it's no normal storm. The veteran uh, sailors here are terrified, praying to whatever God they can think of, and working very hard just to survive. It's no normal storm. But what's captivating right here, the sailors, veteran sailors, they've done this before, crisis mode, what's Jonah doing? Did you notice? He's sleeping. How can this be? How would you explain this? I would call it the sleep of hypocritical depression and apathy. Hypocritical depression and apathy. And I only know because I've run from God before. <laughs> if you've run, this will make sense to you. 
Because no one is more miserable than a real Christian living in hypocrisy. It's miserable. You can't even enjoy your rebellion. And at this moment, Jonah just doesn't care. God's acting in judgment. I don't care. All these people on the boat who are in trouble because of him, he does not care. He's consumed with himself, and that's it. And here's where he begins to be exposed. So the captain comes in verse six and says, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. So fascinating. The captain, like every other pagan at Jodah's time, he's a polytheist. And so each neighborhood, each tribe, each family, you got your God. Lots of gods, but none of them are like Yahweh. They're not the creator of the earth. It's like, pick a God that works for you and do stuff for him. Maybe he'll be nice to you. And, but, but this guy, they can't handle that Jonah's sleeping right now where they're worried about their, their very lives. And so he goes, get up, call out to your God. Maybe he'll give a thought to us that we won't perish. And it's so ironic because is it, does this language sound familiar? Were you paying attention? What did God tell Jonah to do? Arise and call out. And what did Jonah do? He said, No. And now God's prophet is rebelling against God. And who's the better prophet? Who's the one who actually has some respect, at least for some God, and some compassion, at least for some people? It's the pagan. The pagan has no knowledge of the real God in this moment is a better prophet than the prophet of Yahweh, Jonah himself. Jonah's being exposed. As we're going to see, his whole attitude is one of self-righteousness. I'm better than those other bad people. And now he's getting exposed. Are, are you really? Are you really? And, and you know, the irony, give, perhaps the God will give a thought to us. The God of the Bible is giving very much, very much thought to these sailors. But his prophet won't. Oh, church, you ought to be smacked in the face with this. How come you don't care about people outside the walls sometimes? How come we don't care? God cares. And when we get self-righteous, I'm getting ahead of myself. Jonah's getting exposed. The sailors become suspicious of the whole thing. They cast lots. Whose fault is this? Why, are we going, why is this happening? The lots point to Jonah, verse eight. They pepper him with questions. On whose account is this evil coming on us? What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? What people are you from? These are questions of identity and purpose. What are you about? Who are you? What are you about? And, and understanding what Jonah says here is fundamental for understanding the book and I think what God wants to teach us. Look at what Jonah says, verse nine. And he said to them, first four words, what are they? If you got your Bible open. He said to them, I am a Hebrew. That's the first thing that comes out of his mouth, out of his heart. I am a Hebrew. Hmm. What are you supposed to do with this? Well, here's, a, here's another lesson about the running heart. Jonah ran from God because he was following an idol. Jonah ran from God because he's following an idol. Remember, when you run from God, you, you say, God's not good. 
When you do that, you got to replace them because you're still looking. Well, what's an idol about? An idol's anything you've put in the place of God in your life to be your authority, to give you identity, purpose, and satisfaction. So, so this is what we do, right? We take good things and put them in the place of God in our lives and then make them our authority. We devote ourselves to them and we find our identity there, our purpose and our meaning there, and our joy and our happiness there. And when you say, God's not good enough to fill that place in my life, you then move a counterfeit God into that place. It's an idol. And in the ancient world, right, it, was, it would actually be an idol. I've been in Nepal. I'm teaching pastors there, and I, I encounter these high school kids literally making idols that they're going to sell. And, you know, modern Western folks like us are like, oh, that's, that's primitive. We don't do that anymore. Oh, come on, you don't have idols anymore? Look at Jonah's idol. It's his, it's his ethnicity, his nationality, his morality, and his politics. It's his ethnicity, his nationality, his morality, and his politics. And this idol is now ruling his life instead of God himself. Are you convinced of my conclusion there? I'll give you a few reasons. Number one, how does Jonah feel about the Gentile pagans on the boat? How does he feel about them so far? Does not care. Not interested. Second, do you remember that passage we read from Kings 14? Do you remember? Jonah was the prophet of Israel's national expansion, and his deep hatred and concern is who? It's the Assyrians. He hates the Assyrians. And he has this attitude, we as God's, as Israel, we're good, and the Assyrians are evil. And so this all comes together. When God says, go and express, yes, my truth and my judgment, but also my grace to the Assyrians, you guys, in chapter four, Jonah says, I would rather die than see Assyrians repent and be forgiven. And yet this is what the God he claims to worship wants to do and is telling him to do. He's got an idol. It's the idol of his ethnicity, his nationality, his morality, his politics. And Jonah is chasing an idol that has him rebelling against God himself. He's saying no to the very heart of God to show grace to the undeserving. When you say no to God, you got a different God. Back to verse nine, Jonah says to them, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. You know, when we're running from God, it's because we're chasing an idol. We see what Jonah's is. We gotta ask ourselves what ours is sometimes. But another thing about idolatry is, we become blind to our true selves. He says to them, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. You know, he's, it's kind of like he's saying, you told me to pray to one of these gods. I'm a, I'm a Hebrew. I know there's only one God. I'm, I'm not an ignorant pagan. He made everything. There's only one God. Is he right? Is Jonah right? Is there only one God in everything? Yeah, he's right. But he's self-righteous about it. I fear the Lord, and he just can't see it. He cannot see it. Can you see it? 
The sailors can see it. If you fear the Lord, what's your question? You got any questions? If you fear the Lord, why are you rebelling against him? Right? If you fear the Lord, why are you living like a total hypocrite? The the sailors can see it. They ask this question in verse 10. What is this that you have done? They're incredulous. They just can't believe it. Jonah can't see it. He's still feeling self-righteous about what he knows about God, and therefore he despises other people who don't know as much. And yet, when, he, when God takes him down, he becomes exposed. Who really is the idolater here? Who really feels, fears the Lord here? Jonah's exposed an idolater as an idolater who needs to repent. Church, why do we need to hear this? How, how much pain is out there especially in regards to people seeking Jesus because of hypocritical Christians. How much pain is out there because of hypocritical Christians? Just like the sailors who look at Jonah, I'm a prophet, I fear the Lord, and I'm disobeying him. What is this that you have done? We don't get it. How could you have a God like that and then live like this? And the world is troubled over us sometimes because of our hypocrisy. Don't you have some of that pain in your life? I do. Listen, on one hand, the church is a place where we invite sinners to come, right? If you're not a sinner, if you've never sinned, you're going to have a really hard time here, okay? You're not going to fit in because every, uh, everyone else here, we're all sinners, okay? We're still struggling with this. So in a way, right, small h, aren't we all still a little bit small h? Aren't we all still hip- hypocrites? I don't always live the way I want to. I don't. But there's a difference, right, sometimes in capital H, just flaming hypocrite. And the world goes, I don't get it. And it destroys our witness. And God needs to bring us low. He needs to bring us to humility, like Jonah, so he could be exposed. He's exposed as an idolater to her needs to repent. So we've seen God speaks, prophet runs, prophet's exposed. Now we're going to see that God is sovereign in his grace. Verse 11, the sailors say to Jonah, what should we do that the sea may quiet down? Because the storm's getting worse and worse. Verse 12, throw me into the sea. And what I see here is God's grace beginning to work both in Jonah and the sailors. So as Jonah entered the boat the first time, he didn't care at all for the sailors. He does not care. He's just sleeping. I don't care what happens to anybody. But look what happens in verse 12. He says, pick me up and hurl me in the sea, and the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. It's a small thing, but it's very important. Who's he noticing all of a sudden? Them. He's noticing them. He's noticing their kindness to him, actually. He's noticing the trouble that they're in because of him. He's noticing them. He's respecting them. He's caring about them just a little bit. And then he says something shocking. What's he say? The storm will be over when you do what? Throw me in. There's some humility, number one. I'm guilty before God and I deserve death right? 
Number two, there's love as well. Look what he's saying. My life for yours. Isn't that the paradigm of love? You give yourself up for the betterment of someone else. That's love, self-sacrifice. My life for yours. It's God's grace working in Jonah. It's also working in the sailors. Verse 13, they don't just go, all right, and throw him in. They row as hard as they can. They don't want to throw him in. It got worse and worse. Verse 14, then they cry out to Jonah's God. Let us not perish for this man's life. Don't put innocent blood on us. Lord, this is your will. They're obeying the word of the prophet. And they're seeking to please Yahweh, the one and true and real God in how they live. That's God's grace in them. What's grace? How do you define that? Grace is a lavish, undeserved love of God for the totally undeserving. I think the most important part of that definition is undeserving. Undeserving. Because you know what your heart's going to do? You got a little Pharisee in there. He's always going to be telling you, well, you kind of deserve God's love. Look how rad you are, right? You kind of deserve it. Don't forget grace. Undeserving. And this is sovereign grace. God's in control. He saves us despite ourselves, doesn't he, church? Did you, did you come to Jesus because you're just so naturally moral and spiritual? Are you kidding me? That's what keeps people from Jesus. No, it's his grace. His grace. Wow. And think of sovereign grace. Jonah's running from God because he does not want pagans repenting, converted, and forgiven, right? And then what does God do through Jonah running from God? Pagans repent, convert, and are forgiven. (laughs) That gives me so much hope. You know, sometimes I'm nervous when I'm preaching. I'm like, I can't do this good enough to actually help anybody. And the text today was encouraging me because Jonah like tried to do it wrong. And God still worked in people's lives. So, all right, all right, I'll at least try, okay? And God can work because his grace is so powerful. And then verse 17, or sorry, 15 and 16, the men feared the Lord exceedingly. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This, this is an Old Testament way of saying they were converted and they now lived for Israel's God. Wow. They got saved. They repented of their sins. They trust themselves to Yahweh. It's amazing. Through Jonah's rebellion. It's amazing. God's grace is sovereign in these people's lives. It's also sovereign in his rebellious prophet. You know, do you wonder as Jonah like is in the air and he's about to hit that cold water, do you wonder if he thought, well, at least I don't have to go to Nineveh. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. (laughs) You're going to Nineveh. (laughs) But listen, the greatest miracle in this story so far is not that some whale or fish swallowed Jonah. It's the miracle that God's grace is sticking with Jonah. It's his grace that stuck with him. He didn't give over Jonah to the death he deserved. I'm not going to tell you all the details, but... My junior year of college, this whole week I'm thinking of this, I ran from God, man, and I knew better. I just knew better. I ran. I wanted something else. 
greatest regrets of my life. And God brought me down, bam, different ways, brought me down. I remember coming back my senior year, a lot of things have changed. I remember being at a chapel service and it just landed on me like the sunrise. I deserve to go to hell. I wasn't arguing with God about the existence of hell anymore. Uh, I was realizing the rightness of me receiving judgment. I have rebelled against a holy God and broken his laws in many ways. I deserve it. And then just the sweetness, and it changed my life. It's never left me. The sweetness of, yes, it's true, but you're not going to. Why do you stick with me, Lord? Why do you stick with me after what I've done? And that's what he did for Jonah. It's the greatest miracle. Jonah's going to speak to Nineveh. He's going to repent. Now, if you know this book, you're like, he is? Yes, he is. He's not going to repent fully in this book. You know where you see his full repentance? It's in the writing of this book. It's in the writing of this book. He's telling you what he was like so that you can follow that path he was on and be changed like he was. Wow, so good. All right, what are we going to do with this? Just three things will be done quick. Number one, repent of your running by trusting God's goodness in Jesus Christ. Friends, this text, like every text in the Bible, who does it point to? We know. Who does it point to? Jesus. Think of some of the similarities between Jesus and Jonah, similarities and differences. God calls Jonah to go because God wants to show grace to the undeserving. Jonah says, uh-uh. God, in his eternal providence, sends his eternal son, the Lord Jesus, to become human and come in his grace to save the undeserving. What does Jesus say? Absolutely. In it all the way to the end. And you know, when Jesus comes, he sleeps in a boat too, but it's totally different. He sleeps in a boat during the storm, and then he wakes up. What's he say to the storm? Knock it off. What does the storm do? It does. Jesus is the divine son of God in human flesh who has come to save us from our sins. Moreover, on the cross, Jesus, in a way like Jonah, or I guess Jonah in a way like Jesus, Jesus throws himself into the storm of the wrath of God, and he says to each one of us, my life for yours. And he took on the cross the just penalty I deserve for all my sins, past, present, and future, and that's true for every one of us who repent of our sins and trust Jesus Christ. Oh, what love, his life for us. We could go on and on, just as Jonah was down for three days, but then spit up by the power of God as a sign to the Ninevites, Jesus was in the hole for three days, but rose from the dead as a sign to the world that salvation is found in him. This is what turns you back, running to God instead of away from him. It's to see the grace of God for you in Jesus Christ. It's to see what he's done for you, to see his love, see his goodness. I'm more sinful than I thought, but I'm more loved than I could ever dream. I see it in the cross of Jesus Christ. Look at Romans 8.31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Look, church, in Jesus, God is what? For us. He's for you. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us what? 
all things. You have no idea how good God is to give us his son. And in the end, in his time, in his way, in his place, especially in the new heavens and the new earth, to give us everything. Is God good, church? Is he good? Does your soul know this? Does he, do you know that he's better than anything? And if you lose it all, but you have him, you have it all. Repent of your running by trusting God's goodness in Jesus Christ. Second, realize you need grace. Realize you need grace. You know, until God shows, and God, until God exposes you to yourself, you'll be kind of like Jonah was, right? So here's the hard question I want to ask you. Are there any groups of people out there where you're like, let them burn? There are. Let them burn. And why would you feel that way? Because they're wretched, they're evil. And you know what? You're not wrong. But you're missing something. You forgot something. What did you forget? You're wretched and evil. You hate the way they follow their idolatry and demean and abuse other people. So does God. But you got a problem. In some way, you've done the same thing. Haven't you? Haven't you? On your own, apart from God's grace, are you fundamentally better? How much do you need grace? You know, our, our culture actually stirs this up. They want you to get in little groups and hate other groups with no possibility of reconciliation for, or forgiveness. Because in that way of thinking, Jesus is not in the equation. But for us, it's got to be different. You cannot come to the cross and stay self-righteous. What do you deserve? Jesus had to die for me to be accepted by God. I need grace. Okay, so you come to God through Jesus Christ. You need grace. Now that you realize you need grace and you've received grace from God through Jesus, what can you do? Now you can give it. Now you can give grace. So friends, no matter, we want to be a church like this, right? No matter what subculture, some group, uh, some person is in, we got to love them. We want to serve them. We don't want to be asleep to their needs because they're not in our group. We want to have compassion and care for them. We want to we be more like the, sold, the, the sailors in the boat than Jonah. Amen? And finally, you know, verse one, God wants to show grace to Nineveh. What does he need? He needs a prophet to go speak. Do you have any desire in your heart to share the gospel that somebody doesn't know Jesus? Are you hungry for this? Or are you running from it? Pray that God would show you the just rivers of grace he's poured out on you in Jesus. See that you would need his grace, that you're not good in and of yourself. You need Jesus Christ. And then as you have all you need in Jesus Christ, now that you know this grace, what should we do? Show it. Show this grace for his glory. Let's pray. Heavy message, Lord. A lot to take in. I pray for everybody here, uh, Lord, that you would apply at least something of it to our minds and our hearts, that we would see maybe how we're running even right now. We need to come home. Um, that, we would, that we would see whatever idol it is we have that we're chasing that leads us away from you, that we would come back to you through 
Repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, who he is, what he's done, his love for us, that we'd just be overwhelmed with his grace in our lives. Lord, you bring us down to bring us back up because of your great love. And Lord, as we come to you seeing we need grace, we pray that we would know your grace in Jesus Christ, and we pray that we'd be the kind of church that shows your grace. For your glory, for our joy, amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.